that I heard about a company that is changing the way asphalt can be laid down. And so what they're doing is, I guess, when asphalt, and I may have the numbers a little bit wrong, but when asphalt's taken up, they can recycle some of that of that asphalt. They break it down, recycle it, then they add new asphalt into it. Well, asphalt is polluting in many, many ways. The making of it is just terrible. And then, and so what they're doing is they have come up with an approach that apparently is incredibly effective, where they can use certain types of plastic and they bring it into the new asphalt in its waste. I mean, it's stuff that's going to be recycled and they can bring it in to the asphalt. And when it's laid down, not only are they using the plastic that's being wasted, they're also putting down a type of asphalt that's going to last a lot longer than the current asphalt. That in itself is great. But the problem is I sent the article to a couple of people and their response was, okay, so I don't have to worry about plastic anymore because if this thing takes off, I can just use as much plastic as I want because now I feel better that it's going to be recycled in a manner that's going to be useful. Again, you're not addressing the problem of reducing the plastic. Instead, they're actually thinking just the opposite. Now I'm not going to feel so bad. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. I think everybody gets that with regard to the environment, we have to change the system, which means the global economy. For most people, that means they think we have to start huge. If the thing that they're proposing or thinking about doing is not big enough, it's not worth doing. They think, Josh, you do these little things. It's not going to make a big difference. Well, Kevin Cahill runs the Deming Institute, which trains people in the Deming philosophy and practice. That philosophy and practice, practiced by Deming, it revitalized an entire nation that was completely destroyed by a war, Japan. This is in 1950 when he started working there. He wasn't even a citizen. He didn't know the culture. He helped lead them to help create some of the world's highest quality, lowest priced products, the opposite of what they were known for, while leading the workers and management to enjoy their work. And all of this happened in under four years. And when we hear that we have 10 or 12 years to escape irreversible change, that's four years is a lot less than that. So Kevin, who is Edwards Deming's grandson, he speaks from his experience and decades, actually generations of experience of people successfully changing systems. And they did not start by doing huge, big things. They started with a systemic perspective, understanding where and how to act effectively. Kevin's personal project, which you heard about last time, was changing the light bulbs in his house. That doesn't sound like it's going to change the world. But how he responded to it, how he acted, how it affected him, it illustrates how leading this way leads to results way beyond what we see if we just think we got to go big from the start and anything else isn't going to work. That's prep for what happens. I mean, we talk more about Deming, his grandfather, one of my role models, but then we get into his experience changing light bulbs in his house and how it's not just about changing light bulbs. It's about a lot more, which you'll hear from Kevin. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Kevin Cahill. Kevin, how are you doing? I'm well. Glad to be back. Glad to have you here. And we were just chatting about all this of your grandfather's stuff and these changes. One of the things we were just talking about is what happens when you have a system and you, you say you work with a lot of companies where they want to automate stuff. They want to make stuff work better. They want to bring in a technology. But how did you put it? Well, the way I put it was that 
a lot of times what they believe is the solution is we have to look at technology. We have to do this faster. We have to move product through whatever it might be or, or do something faster. And so they bring something in and what they're doing is they're doing something bad faster than they did it before. Instead of saying, wait a second, why don't we look at the system and what's causing the issues instead of thinking, okay, technology is going to be the solution. It doesn't mean that technology coming in in the right situation can't make a huge difference, but oftentimes we're not taking that systemic consideration, taking into, into consideration the systemic issues. And do you have any examples of this? I mean, if you have clients that are private, but maybe your grandfather had examples of, of where this happened? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm trying to maybe think they're public one, examples. I'm trying to think of one in particular that he that he talked about from time to time. I feel like I read one about Nashua or like they're they're putting they had a machine that would make paper and Yeah, and they were well, I think in Nashua Corporation, they were again, I think what they did to get the paper coming out faster was they speeded up the process. And yeah, paper came out faster, but if there were issues with the paper and it ended up getting thrown away, then there was just a tremendous amount of waste. I think he's also told the story about there was a machine that needed like grease in a certain place and they would just throw in plenty of grease to make it work. And then they wanted to get a, a machine that would work better. But actually when they realized, when they looked at the variation, they could find putting in the right amount of grease, they didn't mess things up so much. I don't, I don't remember the details, but then they got the old machine working better than it ever did before. And I don't remember all the details. Maybe the payback cost for the new machine was very high. And then, so it ended up being a huge savings that didn't require. And in fact, if they just put the new machine in and treated it like the, the old one, that probably would have been similar results to the old one, even though the potential is faster, but the potential with the old one is fast. Yeah. I mean, that's a big issue. And it happens all the time that something isn't performing the way we want. So Somebody comes in and, and gives you an idea on, hey, here's a new machine, here's a new approach, and it's going to be faster. But it doesn't necessarily solve the problem that you have. Yeah, I think you talked about also, like word processors were coming in. And if someone doesn't know how to write a letter, a word processor doesn't really help. Yeah, it enables you to like, talk about write that, write that bad letter faster. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason this is such a, why this gets me so excited is that this perspective, to see it seen and acted on successfully in business, in the world, it's a pattern that I see all the time with the environment. People keep looking toward, one of the big things people look at is they say, here's this process here, it's inefficient and produces waste. I don't know, there's a bottle and it uses plastic. We're going to make it with less plastic. All right, so each bottle now is producing less waste or just recycling in general. If I see, you know, I pick up garbage every day, in fact, after this call, actually, I got a call after this one, but after that, I'm going to go out and pick up my daily garbage litter. If I see a bottle and I know that there's a recycling bin around, I'll specifically take the bottle to the recycling bin because I'd rather re- better to recycle it, even if it gets thrown in the garbage by someone downstream for me. At least there's going to be some signal and it'll help it change faster. But I believe that they, they, the recycling in the city gets it to where it should go. Anyway, that recycling does make it more efficient that particular bottle will not get wasted. However, when it gets recycled, now you have a new supply of plastic. And we know how supply and demand works. Increase the supply at stated demand, the price will decrease. That means it's cheaper. That means there's more plastic. People find new uses for plastic. So the one use got more efficient, but you have to look at the demand curve of what used to be more expensive that now is not, not more expensive now. 
And you also have to look at the supply that some, some company that produced virgin plastic was expecting a certain amount of income. And now it's lower because the, they can't charge as much because the recycling costs a new in, input stream. So they have to increase production, which is what the oil companies are doing. So systemically, you've made it more efficient in one place, but you, the system had a side effect of producing waste. And now you're producing waste more, more efficiently, which is to say more waste with less effort. Exactly. And I keep telling people this and they're just like, yeah, but I just made this thing more efficient. Recycling is the answer. But I now view recycling and reduce, reuse, recycle. Everyone hears, everyone knows that. But everyone drops the reducing in favor of recycling and maybe a little bit of reusing. But that's just moving it around. It still exists. Still a problem. Yep. And it doesn't reduce the production. The way I put it is reducing is strategic. Reusing and recycling are tactical. If you don't have a strategy, or I guess in, in our context, I would say reducing is systemic. Reusing recycling is more managerial. It's, it's more working in the system rather than on the system. And if you're in the system, if you're a willing worker in the system, you can make your thing as well as you can. But if the thing you're making isn't what the market wants, making it more efficient doesn't help. The factory is still going to get closed one day. Yeah. You need people to work on the system. Because we have a system in place right now and, and people think it works and is the purpose really to perpetuate the present system or to transform it? I mean, we really need to transform it to make a difference. And where does that transformation start? Does it start in the reduction up front of it? Less use of plastic? What do we replace plastic with? How do, how do we replace it? This is, I'm like speechless because you're saying what no one says. And it's like obvious to you. It's like, of course, this is what we do. And this is how Deming has like eclipsed from, not eclipsed, but it's been Gandhi and Mandela and King and Patton and Eisenhower. And now Deming is just so, I mean, the speech to the third army by Patton is very rousing and it gets people to go into battle where they risk their lives. Yes. I don't know if Deming did anything like that. So different leadership cases, but the systemic viewpoint, it's once you have it, it's so, there's no other way to see things. And it's painful not to see these things. Because otherwise, we have to prepare for the future, not for the past. And unless we're changing the system, all we're doing is preparing what was the past and, and what we're doing right now. We have to look at, at preparing for the future and not, like I said, perpetuate that current approach and think that that's good enough. And little one-offs here and there are going to make the difference. And that's what everyone's doing. I mean, everyone's like, oh, I'll just make this thing more efficient. And, but the element, any element is not the system. You can make every element more efficient and actually, and the system, you can, every element can make less waste and the system as a whole produces more because people increase production. Well, so for example, I was mentioning to you that I heard about a company that is changing the way asphalt can be laid down. Oh yeah, yeah. And so what they're doing is, I guess, when asphalt, and I may have the numbers a little bit wrong, but when asphalt's taken up, they can recycle some of that, of that asphalt. They break it down, recycle it, then they add new asphalt into it. Well, asphalt is polluting in many, many ways. Just the making of it is just terrible. And then, and so what they're doing is they have come up with an approach that apparently is incredibly effective where they can use certain types of plastic and they bring it into the new asphalt in its waste. I mean, it's stuff that's going to be recycled and they can bring it in to the asphalt. And when it's laid down, not only 
are you are they using the plastic right that's that's being wasted right but they're also putting down a type of asphalt that's going to last a lot longer than the current asphalt so that in itself is great but the problem is i sent the article to a couple of people and their response was okay so i don't have to worry about plastic anymore because now it's going to if this thing takes off i can just use as much plastic as i want because I know it's now I feel better that it's going to be recycled in a manner that's going to be useful. Again, you're not addressing the problem of reducing the plastic. Instead, they're actually thinking just the opposite. Now I'm not going to feel so bad. Yeah. And this is our culture. This is what happens if you don't change the culture. Yeah. And you were saying, where do you start? And I don't know if there's any single starting point, but one of them is the hearts and minds of, of what are our values and how do we apply them? That's what I love about. Deming, it looks like there's a lot of math in there, and there is, but it's not about math. The math doesn't give you the answers. The math clarifies what the issues are, and those are inside of us. And that, there's no proof. There's no, we know what we value, and different people have different values. But if you don't know what your values are, then you just end up chasing efficiency or chasing profits. Yeah. Well, and I agree. I mean, the math is, that was what, kind of was a barrier for me in the beginning because I thought it was all math, but all it really did was create an awareness and insight into what you're actually looking at, you know, and how to react to a special cause versus a common cause type variation. And, you know, once you understand that, you know, it makes, makes a huge difference. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not a statistician, but, you know, I, I understand variation to a degree where it can have an impact on everything we look at or think about. In my experience, the, the scientists lumping in many fields under that term, when they really get it, it's, it's really about values. It's really about meaning and purpose. And I think that's really why people who go through, I, I haven't gone through a Deming program, but when I listen to the podcasts of the people who have, they're so full of purpose and so full of meaning and they can't go back because what they were doing before was maybe they make a lot of money, but even then they didn't necessarily like work so much. It was something they had to do versus something they got to do. Yeah. And same with me on, on people look at me and I got to change my language because I say not flying, but in my heart and mind, I am spending time with my community. I am learning to sail and what that learning to sail is in it because it's like the feeling of being on the water and that freedom and the relaxation that the flying was supposed to bring me or the adventure and discovery that the flying was supposed to give me, but didn't really. And by having to pay someone to get it, it actually reduced the experience of adventure and discovery and nature in my life, not increased it. Yeah. Uh, before we hit record, you were talking about, there's a chain of events that you described that was, was it the amount of plastic in, in deliveries or in, in food packaging that you, you're becoming aware of since our last call? Yeah, it just shocks me how much plastic there is. And then also because of the current COVID crisis we're in, how there's even, seems to me, and I don't have the figures, you know, far better than me, but it seems to me that all of a sudden, a lot of what we were doing, people were doing in terms of realizing the impact of plastic has gone out the door because, you know, we have to use plastic to quote, protect ourselves or to put food in or how we're doing stuff. So it's really interesting how I'm seeing, at least just from my personal perspective, there's a, a rise in amount of plastic that's probably being manufactured right now and utilized in food and other things. Yeah. So when last we spoke, 
I believe you were going to look into having some work done in your place. <laughs> and we had it done. I got to tell you, man, it was not as easy as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I was hearing you talking about contractors. And I was like, maybe he's, maybe he's got a good relationship with someone. He's got a buddy who's a really good contractor because it sounded complex. But Well, I thought, okay, I thought, okay, l- l- let's see w- what we can do. Because, I mean, there's a number of things we've already done around our house from an environmental standpoint that, that we've already done in terms of we don't use any pesticides, insecticides. We don't use any fertilizer. Um, we reduce the num- the amount of watering that we do dramatically. I mean, we've done a lot of different things like that. But inside the house is something that we haven't addressed that well. And after you and I talked, I went around. First of all, I was stunned at the number of light bulbs we have in our house. Uh-huh. The house was built 20 years ago before we we moved into it. But I started looking at all the light bulbs, whether it was fluorescent in the garage and in the basement, and then also the number of, um, of incandescent bulbs that we had just throughout the house. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, I can go and buy some LED bulbs. I can move from 60-watt fluorescent to 10-watt LED, right? And I'll just go and change those. <laughs> Not so simple. There's a thing called ballast that you have to change. Mm-hmm. And after spending um, about an hour and pretty convinced I was going to electrocute myself a couple times, I decided rather than um, not be able to have this call with you because I juiced myself, I was going to bring somebody in to, uh, to help on this. And so I understood what you had to do. And we changed all of those out. And then we started, I thought, on the incandescent bulbs that were inside that are basically in cans that into the ceiling, right? I thought all you had to do was just change those. And that turned out not to be the case because a lot of the stuff was on dimmers. And so you were, we were getting this humming and you would try to lower it and it wasn't working. So we, we ended up having all the, the dimmers replaced in the house. But that being said, we replaced 54. And, and Josh, you can't get mad at me that we have 54 bulbs in the house. I know. I understand. I mean, you know, you got to take one step at a time. But we replaced uh, 54 75-watt incandescent bulbs, and we replaced 60 fluorescent bulbs. That's a lot of bulbs. The fluorescent were these long, you know, the long tubes. And so we replaced 60, and I'm sorry, we replaced, I'm sorry, did I say 60? 40 fluorescent and 54 of of the bulbs. How many people live in this house? I knew you were going to go there on that. <laughs> right now, we have just two people living in this house. So tell me about, there's more to the story because this is like the, <laughs> it sounds like a propagated past there with the, with some realizations. Because yeah, you're saying that how, you're wondering what I'm going to think about it, but you yourself are, must be thinking about it. And Well, I mean, it's a lot bigger than we need, but we bought it you know, with the idea that there would be a lot of... Uh, of my wife's kids and, and family coming up and things like that. And so we wanted a, a bigger house so they wouldn't have to go stay in a hotel when they came up here. And where we are such a destination, we thought, you know, we'll at least have a house the size that where we can have a lot of people here because we love to have people come and enjoy the outdoors and get out of the cities that a lot of them live in and, and see what we, what we have and what we experience up here. And they probably enjoy the bike ride up there. I don't know that they're taking the... Now, I might take the bike ride up here. Uh (laughs) 
<laughs> but I will tell you, I, I went and saw my, I had to go see, help my, my parents, my father's suffering from Alzheimer's. And, and I thought, I'm going to drive rather than get on a plane. So I did. Well, and part of it, I must say, was motivated by the uh, fact I wasn't sure I really wanted to get on a plane. But uh, it was a long drive, but didn't get on a plane. I did use gasoline. There was no way I was going to ride my bike through the Nevada desert at 118 degree temperature on my bike. So you're seeing all these bulbs and are you, I'm guessing a lot of them are on all the time or a lot of the time when you're awake. And no. So are you like, what are you thinking as you're doing this? You think, and we've always been very good about turning them off, keeping as little on as possible. So I think that becomes even more to the forefront of your mind is that, wait a second, we just did all this. It doesn't, it doesn't mean, just like you and I were talking about earlier, it doesn't mean, wow, we moved from 75 watt incandescent to 10 watt LED. We can use six times more and still say I can just, I can keep it on all the time. For us, what it did was it hit me that, wait a second, let's even go less than that. Mm -hmm. You know, let's keep them on even less than that. Yeah. Most people, I think, I mean, certainly it occurs to me that there's like a lot of buildings that are lit up at night and bridges that are lit up at night. I think because people are like, well, look, you know, it's like so little, too cheap to meter. So let's use more, which is, but how come you went in a different direction than most people? I don't know. I think because of our conversation, and because it wasn't just a financial consideration, let's save, and I actually put it into one of these calculators to see how much, how much it would save in terms of dollars and also in terms of wattage and stuff like that. But it was, you have a greater obligation to, okay, take step one, why just stop at step one? What can step two be? What can step three be? And I'm not sure what step three is yet or step four is yet ultimately, but step two is, you know, just reducing the amount that we're using right now as much as we possibly can. So this is what a lot of people don't get about. People say, Josh, what one person does doesn't matter that much. And I agree with that, but that's not the point. The point is it's lots of things, but if you act because you care, then when you do it, you realize it makes a difference for you and then you want to do more. So I, when people say, if enough people do little things, it adds up, I'm not going to argue with that. And if that's someone's strategy, I'm not going to stop them from that. But I think that if you do something you care, out of caring for your own motivation, then it's meaningful. And if it's meaningful, you'll do it again. So whether the first thing is big or small is not as important because if you care, you'll do it again and again and again, step three, step four, step five, and then it will inevitably get big and it will inevitably, you'll inevitably share it with others. And however much little things add up, big things add up faster. And things that people share don't just add up, but that multiplies, exponential. And that's why I resist suggesting to people, have you thought about doing X? Or here's one little thing you can do for the environment. Here's one big thing you can do for the environment. I think leadership is about what's, what's something that motivates you? What's something you care about? And can you act on your motivation? I mean, I agree. I mean, it's funny because we've already told several people about this. And they're looking at it, yeah, that's a really good idea. You know, we should, we should take a look at it too. So if some of them do do it, and they've already gotten the name of the people that helped us with the dimmer switches and the ballast, because some of them are not, you know, that's not something that they could do either. But again, there's a multiplying effect if that, if that turns out to be something that, that all of them or a number of other people do. And who knows, maybe someday we could take enough people do it, we can take a coal plant offline. 
I'm thinking if enough people do it, then we have a culture of stewardship. And one cold plan is nothing compared to a culture that consistently expects to find joy and success in these things. Because I'm also thinking it's summer. I would guess that you have an air conditioner running. Nope. Okay, so if you did have an air conditioner running, I would bet that all these lights changing are probably going to lower, would probably lower someone's air conditioning bill because that was probably generating a fair amount of heat. Yeah, our house wasn't built with an air conditioner and it gets pretty hot. Like right now, my office is about 80 degrees, but I'm all right. And that's, that's fine. I'm not going to go pay for an air conditioner so I can get down to 68 for the few months a year. It's at 80 a lot during the summer. I, I just live with it, you know? Actually, live with, when you say live with it, how do you feel? Do you feel like you're suffering? I got to tell you, sometimes on, like, I had a very long three-hour Zoom call this morning. Unfortunately, it was, it was cooler, but I've had some in the late afternoon. And, uh, yeah, you start, to, you, really, you definitely notice the heat hitting, hitting you pretty good when you've been sitting in it for a long time. And it's going up 80, 82, 84, you know, in my office. And I don't think you can, you can't even hear the fan going right now, I don't think. I don't hear it, but I have my fan on me too. Yeah. Because I don't use AC. Yeah. Because I felt like you might have had something like what I have. Like last night was pretty hot in the city. And I just had the window open. And in the middle of the night, I got up and put the fan on. But I don't feel like I'm suffering. I guess Viktor Frankl comes to mind. And I don't want to blow out of proportion some guy who was in Auschwitz versus some guy who's got, you know, in the mid 70s or 80s temperature. It's really humid. It was a lot hotter over the summer. But if he could live, if he could write about bliss and love of his experience in Auschwitz, we have the same DNA. He's human. I'm human. I can certainly, if he could do it there, I can do it here. And so the feeling that I have is, in his terms, would be meaning. Yeah. For me, meaning, purpose. And I'll take that over comfort and convenience. They don't have to oppose each other. But if comfort and convenience comes at someone else's suffering, pain, I'll be fine with meaning and purpose. And I thought I heard something of that in you, but I wasn't sure. No, I mean, I agree. I mean, it's not, I mean, do you have an air conditioner? I mean, do you have an air conditioner in your place? My building has central air. I'm actually paying for it in my maintenance fees as much as anyone else in the building. As far as I know, I'm, I'm the only one who's not using it. Okay. I'm like, how can I get the call board to, to lower my, uh, <laughs> that would be like so complicated. <laughs> I also take the stairs to the fifth floor and only a few people take the stairs to the first or second floor, or the, the second or third floor. And I, I never see someone going to four or five. I mean, once or twice, I see one of my neighbors from five. And we just had an elevator repair and it was really expensive. And the air conditioning repair was like half a million dollars. Wow. And I, I'm like, half a million dollars. We could buy air conditioners for everyone for less, a lot, lot less than that. And then they'd have to pay for it themselves. And they'd have an incentive to turn off the power when they weren't using it. Because right now, I think, when I walk around in the hallway, it's always cool because every floor, all the air conditioners are on. Yeah. And then they could save more money if they're by using less power. And we'd have money left over to buy, like, I forget how many air conditioners you get because the chiller upstairs is like half a million dollars and it, it's supposed to last for 20 years. So I, I can't do the math in my head right now, but half a million dollars over 20 years buys a decent number of air conditioners for enough units in the building. And meanwhile, every year, the not the super, but the, I forget his title, Porter. No. Anyway, he comes in and he comes in and he says, I'm here to change the filter. I was like, well, it hasn't been touched. And he goes, yep, I'll leave it in another year. Hey, that's one more, that's one more impact, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
It's one less filter that has to be made. One less filter has to be thrown away. So how was the emotional experience for you with the lights? Was it, uh, what emotions did you feel? And at the beginning, at the end, as you found it was going to be more difficult than you expected, but then as the results came in. Yeah, I mean, I thought, okay, I just got to go buy a bunch of bulbs. I'm going to go ahead and flip these things out. And I realized it was a lot more of a project. And so you come away with it thinking, okay, you know, at first, am I still going to go through with this project here? And then said, yeah, why not? I mean, it's going to have an impact somewhere down the road, upstream or downstream, in terms of doing that. Maybe downstream, I mean, uh, in terms of its impact, you know, talking to other people when they come in and they see, hey, wow, not that anybody's coming in the house these days, but, you know, at some point, you know, we've talked to people, let them know what we've done. Because I thought, why not just do, don't just do it in isolation. Mm-hmm. Talk to some people, let them know this is pretty cool what we're doing right now. And here's why we're doing it. And here's why it's important to us. So you have that emotion. And you also have, in my mind, the concept that in some way you are make, you are having some small impact. And you know, a lot of times you look and you go, well, really does it make that much of a difference anywhere? Because who's really ever even going to notice except for my, my wife when she, because she handles the bills and she says, hey, our, our energy costs are going down. But I mean, when you add it all up, the sum of what a lot of people can do can, can be a big difference. And not only just the fact that, like you said, that you could eventually close down a coal plant, but you look at it from the perspective of there's impacts elsewhere in the way we look at things that may transfer over to different things we're looking at, such as, hey, now I've got to look at my yard. Now I have to look at this. Maybe I look at different things. Maybe I look at moving to a smaller house. Maybe I, you know, so hopefully you build off of that. And it's not just a one time only that it's, part of a bigger picture that you're looking at and trying to think of from a, from a, a new perspective or a, a changing perspective. I was talking to someone earlier today. She's Swedish and she works on getting people not to fly. And Sweden has, has turned the corner on that one, that it's accelerating. And she's concerned that if people do small things, they might say, good, I've done my part. Exactly. And then stay there and then not do bigger things. So she wants to make sure they focus on the big things. But I view it as learning skills that if you do it, if you want to get to Carnegie Hall, you got to play scales. And I don't think that while there is that risk of that happening, I think more likely people do it and like it and want to do it more. Exactly. And so it's like a gateway. So what do you think about that? I mean, you articulated it far better than I did, but that, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like my wife and I were just talking about, hey, you know, at some point here, we should look at, can we move to solar? Because wouldn't it be cool that we're completely off the grid? And wouldn't that be nice? But then you have to look at, well, what's the impact of solar? I mean, is there, is there an impact? I mean, what happens to these panels 20, 30 years down the road? Can they recycle the panels or is that okay? Is, you know, so we tend to look at it from a bigger picture. Is it, is it worth the cost? I mean, the cost does come into consideration. We looked at putting them on our house back in California when it was something like 85 cents a kilowatt. I think it's down to like eight cents now or something like that or, or 14 cents a kilowatt. So it's much more efficient. But I agree. I mean, I, I think you take one step. In, and like I said, we hadn't talked about solar in years because we live in an area where there's a lot of snow. We've actually looked into it a little bit. Can you actually do solar 
well in an area where you're going to be in snow half the year or four months of the year. So again, I think it does, it does begin to, you know, that's the idea is like you said, it's not just one thing. Does that lead to something else? I think that the key there is that if you start with emotion, you start with what people, having people act on what they, if I had said to you, Hey, change your light bulbs. I think you might push back or you might think, Oh, I'm doing it for Josh. But if you work with emotions, then I could not predict, I would not have said change your light bulbs. I would not have come up with that because of all the things you're saying, like, well, okay, you change changing all the ballast. There's a lot of waste. Maybe it's better to keep them. And then you have to do all sorts of life, life, what's the word? Some, you have to do this full analysis. Yeah. Total cost analysis. Yeah. And if you, if you do that, yes, but you can do that better if you've done something first with some experience. And I think getting that experience is what gets things going. And then you start enjoying the analysis. And I can tell you that I had on the, on the podcast a long time ago, a guest, Sandy Reisky, who he starts companies that do renewables. And one year, if I remember right, companies that he started were responsible for 10% of the increase of this country's entire nation's wind power production. He told me something that helped set the strategy for this podcast. He said, the number one predictor of someone installing solar on their homes is not how much money they would save. It's not how much money they, would, they make. It's not their politics. It's not the government incentives. It's how many of their neighbors have installed solar already. The community influences, and this is one of the areas, it's also with food and drink and cigarettes that, that you know, your neighbors influence you much more than reason or facts and figures or doom and gloom. So if you installed solar, if you're the first one in the neighborhood, you would have a, an outsized effect on all the people around you. Yeah. Well, like you said, I mean, I looked at how much we're saving on this and how much we spent on the bulbs and the person to come in and fix it. I mean, it's going to take us 12 years at this cost a kilowatt. So it's not an economic reason. Mm-hmm. So then why are you laughing when you say that? If it's not an economic reason? No, I mean, you know, like you were saying earlier, you know, people putting solar on or, or doing different things from that, that podcast person that you had on. Sandy, yeah. Sandy, you know, it, it goes more than that because I think a lot of these companies, when I went to look at the different bulbs and the different options we had, their biggest thing was pushing the savings. Here's a calculator in terms of how much it's going to save you from a dollars and cents standpoint. And, you know, I don't think it's there yet because for us, it's 10 to 12 years. If that was the reason we were doing it, it would only have made economic sense if it was maybe two, three, five years. So you have to, so it's more than just that that's making the decision for you. You have to look at that bigger picture. I'm also thinking if you take step two and that, and now you're using lights less than you would have, that's going to make it maybe 11 years. But then if you do step three that you wouldn't have done otherwise, and I don't know what, you don't know what step three is either yet. I don't I don't. How about relationships? How did this affect, it sounds like your wife got, I mean, you, you made an agreement that to, to me that involved other people. Yeah. It could have been a burden for them. They could have not liked it. Well, she wasn't sure that she wanted to do it because a couple of years ago, I at our house when uh, we lived in California, I had put some LED bulbs in. And that was back when they were just bright white. That was your only option. And that, that really bothered her eyes. And so I could only have them in my office. And so this time when we had the discussion, she said, I hope they, can, they now have more, more of that mellow yellow light that's out there. And once they did, she was all in. She goes, let's do it. I'm willing to spend the money to do it. I, I think it's a great idea. 
anytime we can we can provide some level of savings, that's a, that's a positive thing. This pattern happens a lot. That once before people act, they view others as like, hmm, not sure if they're going to go into this. But there may be a point of resistance, and then after you do it, the way I state it is that people start acting like leaders, and they see others as part of the solution, and yeah. to engage, right. not to hit over the head with. You know, as you're talking, as you're saying this process that you're going through, I could not help, and I may be getting ahead of myself here, but your grandfather talk shows a lot. A diagram, I'm going to describe it a little too much because you know what I'm talking about. And on the left, there's all the inputs. And then there's all the steps of the process, the value add within the company. Then it's going to the customers and there's a feedback in of getting what the customer says and so forth. And as I understand, and you're nodding along because that, as I understand, was like put on every factory in Japan or something like that. And it would contrast with, I guess, in America, if they did put something like that up, it would be like management, labor, duke it out, something like that. And the customer appears nowhere in it and the way that you're talking about, I feel like you are starting, you're starting to feel a process of applying sustainability to your life. I'm not sure that's not quite right, but something like that. I think that the diagram that, that your grandfather talked about came, I don't think he made it up. I think he sat with them and figured it out together. And once they figured it out, they're like, let's, this works. And that was a process that Japan, Japan's industry needed to go through to gain that perspective and apply what that diagram, what that system, that system understanding led to. And I think that I hadn't thought about this before. Well, I hadn't read the book before, but I wonder if there's a diagram like that, that would come out of working with a few companies. It probably wouldn't be exactly that one because this is not, we're not talking about manufacturing. Not that that was just about manufacturing. Yeah. But, but think about this. A, a lot of those companies who are Deming companies, they have their entire organization as a system and they make it visible. Because like we talked about, what is a system? You know, it's a network of interdependent components that work together to accomplish the aim of that system, right? Mm-hmm. But that system, whether you're manufacturing or whether you're running a hotel or you're in the service industry, the size of that system is as large as you determine that. But there's so much more that, that can go into that system. And one of my colleagues would talk about I think I'm getting it right. He would talk he would talk to his kids about making pancakes. Let's talk about the system. Well, what what goes into making the pancakes? And before you know it, that system they're talking about the farmers who grow the wheat. Mm-hmm. That goes into the pancake. I mean, so when people who understand that Deming philosophy, they start to look outside of just the system of I am making this product or this service and that's all I care about. They're looking at that larger perspective of how they fit into the even broader system, which is their community, which is, and you can keep expanding that out. They can't control all those elements, but those are inputs into that system. And you put me in touch with Kelly Allen. Before we started recording, you and I were talking about my conversation with Kelly Allen. And if that results in me bringing sustainability, them and Deming companies have gone through Deming transformation, bring in the Deming transformation. I wonder if an approach like that may evolve, not just for companies, but for industries or nations. I agree. I mean, you take a look at that system. So what, what does the system have to do? Nobody wants a system unless it's creating something of value, right? Some mm-hmm. kind of results. But you know, once you start to understand it from a Deming perspective is, and you and I talked a little bit about this with respect to 
your organization is, is that it's important that that aim never be defined in terms of a specific activity or method. You know, it it must relate to a better life for everyone Mm -hmm. because you start to look at a specific activity or method is you see systems like, I'll pick Enron, for example, what was their aim was to make money. They made money, but I'll tell you, there was a heck of a hell of a a, a human cost to that. Mm -hmm. So I think that once you understand you start to understand systems thinking a little bit more. You start to understand those inputs and those outputs and, and the influence they have on the process that you're actually doing that's going to make a difference. But, you know, to, to actually get that, you know, fr- from a leadership standpoint, you know, the existing system or a new system, if you have an existing system, the obligation of, that, of the leader of that is to transform that system. And, you know, that, that leader has to focus on transforming and optimizing that, that organization or that system. And you have to know what does that leader have to be able to bring to the table? And I think my grandfather said uh, there were three things. He, must, he or she must possess uh, knowledge, be persuasive, and have personality. And you have to have that theory. What is your theory to bring about the transformation in that system that will bring all the types of gains that you want to the organization and to all the people that are in it or that are impacted by it. And going back to Japan, when my grandfather drew that system diagram on the blackboard before every workshop and seminar he did, it was them understanding that Toyota was only a small part of the system. Japan was the biggest, biggest part because it didn't do Toyota any good if somebody came in and built roads from Toyota city out to the ports and the roads were only two lane and not big enough to have the trucks bring all the stuff out there or get the raw materials in. And, you know, when you're a country, Japan, that has very few natural resources, where are you going to get those natural resources to be able to build the things that they built? That's a bigger system. How do we get it in? How big do the ports need to be? How do we get it from the ports to the plate? How do, you know, all of that stuff is that systemic thinking and that whether you're a Toyota or whatever company, you're going to have to sub-optimize yourself to some degree for the better of the bigger system. So, you know, in terms of me putting the light bulbs in, it was basically sub-optimize because I mean there was a cost to that. That was more than the value that I'm going to get out of it just for purely from an economic standpoint. So I have to be willing, we have to be willing to do some of that to optimize the larger part of the system. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I cannot wait to get started with Deming companies. (laughs) I mean, what you're talking about is, I I hear you saying it is like obvious from your experience. I mean, not obvious. I don't want to be like someone who doesn't see it that way. It might not seem obvious to them, but 
yeah, when I try to, I wouldn't put it as well as you did, but when I try to convey things like that, then it never makes sense. And I think there's a bit of experience that you have to have. Did I tell you about the hula hoop thing with, with um, uh, Dennis Meadows, from, who, who co-writer of Limits to Growth? No. I didn't, oh, man. Okay. So I'm working on this book and I want to get the idea of systems across, but I can't write a whole chapter on systems so, because I don't think that will get the meaning across as well. So I want to give a couple of stories, certainly a couple about your grandfather. And one about, so Dennis Meadows co-write with his wife, who's passed away, Donella Meadows and uh, Jorgen, I forget his last name. And it's a book on applying systems thinking to the environment. And it was, he first came out in 1972. Anyway, so he teaches about systems. So there's a video online. And if you want, I can send you the clip because I, I edited out this one clip. Yeah, I love it. He's in front of a group of, of people, of a corporation that's brought him in to teach them about systems. In the course of it, there's, there's one demonstration. He gets a hula hoop. And he puts a hula hoop around him and he gets six volunteers from the, from the audience to stand up. And he says, okay, I think it was six. And so each of them, he says, okay, you can hold the hula hoop with your finger underneath it. You can't grasp it. You can only hold it. You can only hold it from below. And the deal is this, all of you hold it up. So now you get six people around him sticking their fingers out and the hula hoop resting on their fingers. He says, here's the goal. The goal is to get the hula hoop to the ground as fast as possible. However, if anyone's finger loses contact with the hula hoop, that's a problem. And we have to, I'm going to bring it back up to, where it started. So you got to go down, but in unison. I can tell you in my, from my personal experience that I believe that relative to the average American, I've decreased my consumption faster. And socially, I pay a penalty. People don't say, oh, how can, you do that? How can I do that too? They say, What's, you're weird, you're extreme. <laughs> and I endeavor to remain in the mainstream because I want to keep my influence. But people think I'm weird and people think it's odd. And, and like, Every now and then I'll go to a restaurant with friends and I don't order anything. So it's kind of a hassle because I don't want to eat doof. Doof is my word for food that's super processed and oil, fat, salt, and sugar. So I can tell you that if you move too fast, you pay a, a social penalty. So far, I want to change that. So I can see where this model would make sense. So here's my question to you. And this is the question he says. Before he says, okay, I'm going to say one, two, three, go. And then the goal is to lower it as fast as possible to the ground. But if you come untouched, and I'm going I'm to keep watching, I'm watching, right? And then I'm going to make fun of you. And I'm, I'm going to raise it back up and you got to do it again. So my question to you is, is his question to the audience. What will happen? What happens when he says one, two, three, go? My guess is they all do it independently and just try to move down as fast as they can instead of talking about it first and coming up with an, an approach to how can we get this down fast. And somebody goes down a little bit faster than somebody else. I would have guessed the same thing. It's unbelievable what happens, except it's, it's super believable because what happens, happens. It goes up. What? I mean, I, I can't explain it any better than anyone else. I've seen it, so I've seen it happen, but I'm not lying. You can, it goes up. But if you think about it, it, it starts to make sense. They can only push up on it. So they don't, no one wants to be the one who's the weird one. No one wants to be the one who causes the problem. So they all push up. Interesting. He created a system that actually has... Instead of thinking, because they're afraid to go down too fast, so they're all be done. We live in a world in which most people, everyone wants pollution to go down, and it keeps going up, because we're not looking at what our motivations are. Everyone wants comfort and convenience. Everyone, you know, yeah, of course I don't want to pollute, but my mom is over there in California, and I'm here in New York. That's, talk about a system effect. Yeah. Everyone, everyone individually wants to go, do, to go down, but what does the system want? The system only has instructions to point up, to push up. It doesn't only have, and you know, there's obviously big differences between fingers and hula hoops and a global economic system, but there's an essence there. Interesting. 
Interesting. You're the one who told me about the uh, the elk. Was that you with the the 75 will will 25 percent will live? I have told you that story. A really interesting point. I haven't been able to get with my buddy to talk to him because I was down in California. But I'm going to ask him the question that you posed to me. Yeah, because one of the things I pointed out, I forget if I said this to you when we were talking about it before, is that there's a couple differences between elk and us. One of the main ones is that elk don't shoot each other when they encroach on each other's territory. I'm sure they fight a little bit, but they don't have like weapons. And in humans, if there's, say there's 10% not enough of some resource, it probably wouldn't be food because we'll do what it takes to make food, but it'll be some other resource. And people will move. Once you start crossing borders, you get wars. Once you get wars, you get atrocities that, are, that elk don't commit against each other. There's another big difference between us and elk. We can predict the future with some expectation of, you know, we can use the past to predict what, what may happen. And we help each other beyond what elks do. We can. Will we? That, that's not necessarily the case. But we can. I believe that leadership is, I see as necessary for large enough groups of people to help each other. I mean, they'll, we'll help each other in general, but I think it helps a lot when there's a resource at stake, when people are going to die, when it's life and death, when you have warlords forming and demagogues saying, the other guy's going to get you killed. Stick with me. Yeah. And I could see, you said the numbers, roughly speaking, I think you said, he said, there's enough food for 20, 75, but actually 25 will live. Yeah. And I would suspect that when humans, with humans, it would be a greater ratio if we don't act together, which would, I think requires leadership, I would suspect that 10% too little resource would result in 10% living. But I don't want to get there. I don't want to ever find out. But these are like the opening stories for my book, a couple stories of of what motivates me. Like that elk story, that has encapsulated my perspective on population of overshoot and collapse better than anything I've come across before. You've given me a nugget of gold. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I appreciate it greatly. My pleasure. I'll tell my friend that. He'll, he'll, he'll like it. Well, we've been talking for a while. I don't want to keep going on too long. Anything I didn't think to ask to, to bring up before wrapping up? No, nothing I, I can think of. You know, I just, I mean, I think it's terrific what you're doing. And, you know, I, I think as you, I'm hoping that as you go through some of the stemming stuff too, it even gives you some more, greater perspective on how to bring about what you're, what you're trying to do. Because, I mean, you're, you understand why this type of transformation that you're talking about is going to bring gains to the system, the world system that you're talking about, and to all the people who exist within that system. And you, as my grandfather talked about from a leadership standpoint, you clearly feel compelled to accomplish this transformation. You know, it's an obligation to you, to the people around you, to your family, your friends, and goes even way beyond that. You know, and those are two key elements I know my grandfather talked about from a leadership standpoint. And what he said, I remember the third part of it was that you have to be practical about accomplishing that transformation and and having a plan that includes step by step that can be explained in terms that everybody can understand. And it just can't be you know, what, what's in your head. There you go. I love that. Yeah. Leadership step by step. And, and, and the key is to convince and the people that are in power that can make it happen and be persuasive. And I think, you know, that that's a big key. Man, I'm honored of what you're saying about 
my getting the Deming stuff because I love what I'm getting from it. And one of the, you're, you're saying obligation. And I know you didn't mean obligation in the sense of like, oh, like I have to. But one of the phrases that's been popping in my head a lot lately is, I don't have to practice leadership. I get to practice leadership and stewardship. It's, it's a joy. It's like, there's nothing I would rather do. And there's plenty of things I could do. You know, if, if the world were not in the state it was, that it, it seems to be in, I would not choose to lower, like if, if we were in balance, I would not be like, let's lower emissions. I'd be like, okay, we're fine. I'd choose other things, but that's not the world that I live in. And I live in a world where people don't see that if there's enough food for 75, 25 will make it. Yeah. When I go back, I think it chapter five in uh, the New Economics, which I think you have, where my mm-hmm. grandfather talks about, you know, there's great ideas and great plans and things like that that people have, but there's incredible amounts of frustration around great ideas and great plans. And that, that it becomes, you know, like you talked about, a great idea bounces back. You push against somebody and it goes nowhere. And I think he talked about how with great plans and great ideas, there must be a plan of action which people can understand in simple terms with a prediction of results. And that, that a lot of times that, that plan being simple enough that regular people can understand it or the people you're trying to convince can understand it, that it's brief enough, that, that it's simple enough, and that there's actually a prediction on what the impact will be becomes really, really powerful. Yeah, I think that I think I do pretty well on my own, but I think one of the biggest things I look forward to in working with Deming companies and Deming people, people have gone through these transformations, is I think that they their experience is gonna make a huge difference that I, I just don't have that experience yet to make it practical, to make it fun, to make it not make the obvious mistakes, make better mistakes. Well, everybody's going to make mistakes as long as we learn from it and move forward. Well, Kevin Cahill, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been great. I can't add anything to the conversation except to share how often I felt actually slack-jawed at him saying exactly what I keep trying to share with others, but I can never say in a way that they get. But Kevin speaks, again, with decades, generations of experience. I also can't wait to start working with leaders and people up and down organizations with experience approaching problems systemically, the Deming way, and who saw that they had to change not just their business, but whole industries and a nation. And that would benefit themselves. So they had to work on a grand scale, starting with themselves, to benefit themselves, to benefit everyone. What he was talking about with building the roads and Toyota and things like that. Call me crazy or over-optimistic, but I see combining my sustainability experience and perspective with Deming companies and their leadership experience, getting results like Japan did in the 50s and beyond, I see combining those things to changing a system. If Japan can, why can't we? That's the name of the show that restarted Deming's influence in the US. I see that question, if Japan can, why can't we, as poignant today. Well, if Japan can do it in industry, why can't we do it in sustainability? I believe that we can. I believe that we can turn around the United States as fast as Japan did, this time on sustainability. It sounds crazy, It may sound impossible, but it's been done before. We wouldn't be doing something for the first time. And actually, we have their experience to build on. It gives me optimism, although I recognize it's a lot of work, changing people's minds, their viewpoints, their perspectives to adopt the system's perspectives. Very difficult, but possible. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, 
community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.